talking about truth. And uh, so we've been answering just some very logical questions about the Bible, talking about the Bible. And uh, how did we get the Bible and, and where did it come from? So we answered, uh, we started with this last time. Uh, I wanted to just kind of set the stage. So if you weren't here last time, I think most of you were, but if you weren't here last time, there's this interesting exchange in John 14 where, where you know, Philip and Thomas and, and Jesus and some of the disciples are having this conversation. And Jesus ends up saying this statement. First, he says, you should know me. He starts off with that. You should know me. You've been with me. You should know me. But, okay, he, and he ends with this statement. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. That was, that was kind of blowing their minds. They didn't have a, a way to process that. And this is what we're doing. It says this next part. It says, or at least believe on the evidence. Everyone say evidence. Evidence, evidence of the works themselves. Jesus said there's a, I would call it a lesser, the Bible doesn't really say that, but he, when he uses the word at least, I mean, belief is belief, so that's great. But we're, we're talking about all these things that um, might not be like a normal message for you because we've never really talked about them in this church before. And uh, I just think it's really important that we just examine some of the evidence. Just like Jesus was saying, there's things that God is doing that we can at least look at the evidence, even if we're not you know, having great faith of just taking God at his word. We, that's what we're working towards. But sometimes people get hung up. And so uh, with our culture being more and more and more and more secular, see, you used to not have to talk about this because we just, everybody knew that it was God's word, and of course it is. We all take it as God's word, and you don't need to tell me any more than that. I'm good. If you go very far nowadays, if you, if you have an idea about some sort of morality or, or, or why we should or should not do something, Go ahead and try to use the Bible as your justification for that. You get a variety of answers, and that and that has always been the case somewhat. It's really the case today. And so, two things. Sometimes people that we're sharing the gospel with get stuck on something. And I said last time, you have to be sure that you know this. You cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven, ever. But we can have a defense, an apologia, the word of God. It's the Greek word for it. That's where we get the word apologetics. It's not apologizing. It's not going around saying, I'm sorry, Jesus did this. Well, that's not what it means. It means giving a response, a, a thought-through response. And that's some of the evidence that we're talking about. So some people just get hung up on because someone has told them something. And uh, you're actually going to see some, some of those slides. And they're just like, well, I want to believe in God, but I know that this and it's some, some lie that secular scientists or theologians or whatever have, have espoused, said. And so they get stuck on that. And so you're trying to share the gospel with them. And they're like, well, no, but I know that such and such is true. And you just go, oh, that's not true at all. Let me, let me I can't remember any of it. Let me call my pastor, <laughs> right? So it's not a deal of where you guys need to remember all this. It's just if, if this is exciting for you and if, if you want to take some notes, great. It will give you some, some, some ways to help people get over the barrier that like God's drawing their heart. God's the one doing the drawing, but they get stuck on something. Well, we know Jesus was just a myth. Wait, hold on. We're going to look at that one today. And you can say, let, give me your hand. Let me, let me help you step over this stumbling block that you just can't get past 
because they because you can see in their eyes that God's stirring in their heart. You know there's some spiritual work going on, but they can't get past it. And so that's one of the ways this is helpful. This is also helpful for you when maybe some people that you respect or trust or whatever all of a sudden come out because this happens regularly. All of a sudden come out with some statement saying, "Yeah, well we we know that the Bible's not really reliable, but we we still go to church or whatever." And then you just, if you're maybe a more immature believer or, or just having a rough time, maybe you've been a solid Christian and you're just like, oh, I don't, well, I don't believe that. But I, well, if they believe that now, so we're just giving you some evidence of why you can trust the word of God to be the guide for your life. And uh, so that's what we've been looking at. We answered the first question, is the Bible that we have, this is the first question we should ask. Well, is this even what the disciples wrote? Do we even have the same thing that they wrote? So we spent a couple of weeks talking about that. We looked at you know, all the other ancient books and how many copies there were and how early they were written. The one thing that's really cool about the Bible is it was written really early. I don't mean like early like Genesis time. I mean early like from when the events happened. That's what it means when it's written early. So Jesus, do you know the years when Jesus was around? Like 80, like 3 to 33, somewhere in there. Um, so he died somewhere around A.D. 33. Mark's gospel, quite a few scholars are pretty confident that it was in the 40s that that was written. That's 10 to 15 years after the events. And it could be even earlier. And that's, that's early. And so we thought some of these other books, we've seen that you know the copies of them are hundreds, if not thousands of years older, or 1,000, 1,400 was one of them. Um, so the word of God that we have today, we can be, we can be really certain that that's actually what the disciples wrote. Second thing, here's the one that we're answering now, before Curtis stole my big ending. <laughs> it was just funny. The second logical question that you would ask, like, all right, fine. We know that we have exactly what Mark wrote. We have it today. Exactly what Luke wrote. We have, we have that today. All right. But you know that it's just a bunch of stories, right? Jesus is a myth. It's fairy tales. Like they just made up this whole thing. Sure, they wrote about it. And yeah, we have what they wrote. But they wrote, they wrote fables. They wrote stories. They wrote myths. They wrote fairy tales. They wrote, they wanted to start this new power group. And so they wrote, no, we're going to look at why that is not true. So there's a couple of ways that we look at that. We, we went through, we're not going to go through all those scriptures, but we, we looked at scriptures that John wrote, we looked at scriptures that Paul wrote, we looked at scriptures that Peter wrote, and we looked at scriptures that Luke wrote. And in every one of those, it was this idea of they're writing this letter, because you remember, it, they, weren't, they didn't start out at a publishing house writing a best-selling book. They were writing letters to either people or churches, right? Correct? Yes? No? I don't, I'm not trying to be silly. Like, sometimes I don't know what we know and what we don't know. And I don't want to ever take for granted, and I don't want to ever make you feel bad, silly, or condemned if you don't know this. And that's, as a youth pastor, that's just what we always do. We always assume nobody knows this stuff. And not in a bad way. It's like we want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So it didn't start out as a book. It was scrolls, and it was letters that were written to churches or to people or uh, a prophetic word or whatever. And so in there, uh, they all talked about, hey, you guys know these guys, and we were passing along to you what we saw and what we heard, and we saw the word eyewitness all the time. The people that are writing these things actually saw these things, and that is so important. 
um, they, they were with Jesus. They saw him after he rose. And it said in the one verse that 500 people saw him. And, mo- and it said most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. And that's what's so important about eyewitnesses. I gave you the analogy. like So we're talking like 33 to maybe 43 to 45, you know, 10 to 12 years. So I said, well, just imagine I wrote a book. I was starting a new religion. I was starting a new following. And I wrote a book uh, 10 years, 15 years later about what happened in 1999. Remember when Canada dropped a bomb on the United States and all those people died and we had over 400 inches of snow that year. And so I just kind of rattled off these things and I wrote it all down. And we're pretty confident that wouldn't be a bestseller and I wouldn't have a big following. And why is that true? Well, because... Most of you were around in 1999, and you're like, yeah, pretty sure I would have remembered a bomb being dropped on the United States. And it, besides, it's Canada, <laughs> right? That's a joke. Because they're, really, they're like really peaceful, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I, I know. I, just, I thought that would be a little better than that, but oh well. Note to self, don't tell Canada jokes anymore. <laughs> So it was really simple to them in the first, the first century critics because if they had a problem with what was written, they just went and asked the people that were still around. Does that make sense? Are we, are we all on the same page? I want you to see how big of a deal that is. We take that for granted. If you're studying this as a skeptic, you would not take this for granted. And what they keep finding out is, oh, these are really early. Oh, Okay, well, the people would have still been around that they're talking about this stuff going on with. This is Mark Clark. He wrote a book. He's a pastor up in Van- he actually Vancouver, Canada. He's a Canadian. Uh, and he, his main ministry is to atheists. And they see, uh, they actually started a church in Vancouver, which is one of the most, most a- uh, heathen, atheistic cities in Canada. Canada is already far more liberal than we are. Uh, very few believers so he started a church there, and everybody's like, you're crazy. And so this is just a side story. Um, but he uh, started preaching, and they, they were uh, running, I don't remember what it was, I think like 800 or something like that, or 500. And so he said, I, you know what I'm going to do? He said, for the next eight weeks, bring your unbelieving friends if you want. Anyone that's got questions, and they started doing things like this. Don't get nervous, I'm not going to do things like this all the time. But they did a... My problem with the Bible, my problem with Jesus as the Son of God, my problem with sexuality, my problem with whatever, kind of just like eight different topics that the Bible addresses that people struggle with. And their church exploded to like 1,600 people overnight. They just didn't even know, and most of them stayed. Because it was people that really wanted it, they're, they're really, we, we feel like society is super secular, and it really is. But there's also a spiritual hunger. And so if we're able to just give honest questions, answers to honest questions, and we get freaked out or upset when people have real questions, we think, oh, you just want to attack. And some people really do. But there's a lot of people who don't just want to attack you. It feels like they're attacking you because they just want to know. They think it's ridiculous that we would believe in something like this. And if the only answer we've got is kicking a can at them and saying, well, yeah, you're just going to hell anyways. You better believe. I think we can do better than that. I think we can do better than that. So this is just my challenge, my little nudge, like I think we can do better. So he says this, during this time, some amazing claims were made about Jesus, claims that 
could have easily been discredited. Everything from 2,000 pigs drowning to Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and some fish. They could have just went and asked, hey, were you there at the 5,000? Like, did they really, did they have a bread truck come in? No, man, I was there. Like, I watched them. They just walked around. They broke the bread. Uh, raising a Roman leader's daughter from the dead. These were all public events, we said this last time, in small towns that would never have gained an audience in written form if they hadn't really happened. And we went to places and faces. So do you, do you guys get it? People were still alive that this stuff happened to. Uh, Acts, uh, well, this is what we ended on last time. We won't go through the whole story, but something happened where they're getting uh, stoned or whatever in this town uh, in Iconium which all of history knows is actually in the region of Lyconia. Everybody knows that Lyconia, I, I didn't, but you know, if you were in that area, you knew that just like Ross, Older, Sissenden, or Peaver is part of Roberts County, Iconium is part of Lyconia County, or the region of Lyconia. And so it said that they were in Iconium, but then they fled to, verse 6, when the apostles learned of it, they fled to the region of Lyconia. And all of history will say, well, no, you already were in Lyconia. That's why the Bible is so dumb and so wrong. Because it can't even get its places right. But then we found this. This is where I got so excited last time. In 1910, Sir William Ramsey discovered an inscription declaring that the first century Iconium, so the Iconium, the city of Iconium, when Jesus was around, was under the authority of Phrygia. So it was in the region of Phrygia from the year 37 to the year 72. It was only during these years that Iconium was not under the authority of Lyconia. So while these New Testament books were being written, this town of Iconium was actually in Phrygia. I mean, it was in the same place, but it was in the region of Phrygia. I love this statement. Not only did this discovery confirm the accuracy of the statement in Acts 14, it showed that whoever wrote this passage knew that it was, that what district Iconium was in at that time that places the author as an eyewitness to the events. So we're, ask, we're, asking, we're answering the question, did this stuff really happen? We see that for this little sliver of time, Iconium was in a different region, or a member of a different region, and the people that wrote the New Testament from 37 to whatever, 84, whatever it said in there, that for those years, like they knew that. Like anyone else, any, anything later than the 80s or whatever, because people say, well, the Bible wasn't written until the year 200 or whatever. If they would have written it then they would have known that they would have put Iconium in Lyconia. So I don't want to go any more on that, but so cool that again and again and again, archaeology and history proves that the Bible is right and everyone else was wrong. Norman Geisler makes this statement. Many of the ancient locations mentioned by by Luke in the book of Acts in the New Testament have been identified through archaeology. Listen to this. In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without an error. How cool is that? When we read the Bible, we're all about, I got Google Maps, and I can look, and it's no big deal to us. Hold the phone. This was written in a time when you had to know this stuff. You had to be there and be present, or you could very easily get this wrong. You couldn't just run down to Starbucks and get on the internet and look at a map of the place. Like You had to know this. And he nails it 2,000 years ago. Gets it all right. I just think that is so incredible. Here's one. I like this. Talk about detail. Talk about eyewitness. Mark 15, 21. A certain man from, where is he from? Cyrene. What's his name? Simon 
Who is he the father of? Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Gosh, I wish I could just know who that guy was that carried the cross. I heard the I heard this story. Oh, his name was Simon. He lives in Cyrene. His kids are <laughs> Alexander and Rufus. Talk about detail. If they were inventing a story, you don't put details like this in an invented story. Make sense? I don't want to lose you. I don't want to just like overwhelm you and bore you with stuff. But what, what I'm saying is you don't record that Simon is Alex and Rufus's dad. If you got, like, maybe Simon's dad now and you want to go talk, but Alex and Rufus, they live down the street. Go talk to them. Go ask them if they remember his, your dad telling stories about when he had to carry the cross of Christ. And he wrote it like, you guys should know these people. Does that make sense? You, like, these are people that you could go ask and you could know who they are. Hittites, ever heard of them? All the ites in the Bible. Jebusites and termites and, like, all the things. Well... People really struggled with Hittites. For a long time, people, people have, like, there's, real, there's ones that history doesn't really talk about at all. And if they're supposed to have such a prominent place in Bible history, well, then we should be able to find something about them. And so people mock Bible believers all the time because Hittites were one of them. Oh, they, don't, they never existed. Over the last 150 years, so again, recent, archaeologists have uncovered Hittite ruins, artifacts, and 10,000 clay tablets from the Royal Archives. Now there is no doubt of the Hittites' flourishing civilization. I promised you there was going to be some pictures, and I think there's a couple just coming up here. I can't remember. King David. This was a favorite. I remember reading stories about this, how just... They ridiculed Christians because you've got this prominent fairy tale hero went out and fought this big giant with rocks. Oh, you guys are morons. There is no King David. And if he was held that prominent of a place in Israel's history, we would certainly have seen something about him. And for whatever reason, all that stuff was lost and hidden. And we don't know why, do we? I mean, you might have a guess, but we don't. I don't know why. God never revealed that stuff. So in your life, when you're struggling through a problem, we don't always have the why answers. We don't always get to know why God has not revealed some things and has revealed other things. And I think that's really important for us to know. We always trust him. Evidence is not what we put our ultimate faith in. Jesus is what we put our faith in. But sometimes he's just gracious and good enough to give us some evidence. And that's what we're talking about. But I want, in our personal struggles, sometimes we want and demand proof, God, that you're really here for me right now. And I just want to challenge you, trust in him. It's like he said to uh, Philip or, or whoever it was, Thomas, just, you, you should know me. You've been with me this whole time. Keep that record of what I'm doing in your life, because you should know me by now. But if you need some evidence, I'll give you some evidence. So King David, they always picked on us for that one because he, you know, Jesus is in the line of David and just, I mean, some pretty pretty big claims by Christianity in the, in the scriptures and zero evidence for it in history. Until 1993, the Tel Dan steel. Steel means piece of rock or whatever. And an inscription on the Tel Dan inscription says, King of Israel, King of the House of David. And this was, a, uh, I can't remember what it was exactly. Get it mixed up, but 
There's your first picture for the day. And so now we have irrefutable proof that there was a guy in Israel named David who had a prominent place in Israel's history. Evidence. Matthew 26, 57 says this. Those who had seized Jesus led him away. It's, it's, Easter's coming up in a couple weeks. And we're going to be talking about this. Led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And so we find 1990. This is the first actual human remains of any biblical f- uh, character that have ever been found. This is called an ossuary. The ossuary of Caiaphas. His remains are actually in that thing, and we found it in 1990. There's an inscription on it that says who it is. How cool is that? Is that enough to get us to believe in Jesus? No. But is that some just some amazing evidence that God says, I'll give you a help. I'll give you a little extra nudge. I'll give you something that the one that God is really pulling on their heart, but they're struggling to know if this word is even real. And when you get in that place where you're doubting, don't doubt, but if you get there, I've got some evidence that I've placed along the way that for whatever reason in the, ni- in the 1900s is now being revealed to us. This next section of scripture is only one slide, but it is bizarre. When you make up stories, so we're still answering the question, well, isn't it just stuff they made up? That's, I know we kind of got lost in that, but that's, what, that's the question we're still answering. Sure, we have what they wrote, but isn't it just a bunch of myths and fairy tales? Because for sure the Bible isn't historically accurate. Look at this next scripture and look at the detail in here. Now in the 15th year, okay, 15th, that's a date right there. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's a guy, that's a ruler, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, that's a governor and another region, and Herod was tetrarch, okay, there's tetrarch, that's another position and another guy, another region of Galilee, and his brother, oh, okay, so Herod's brother, Philip, so now we know some family, he was tetrarch of the region of Ituria, oh, another region, Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, wait a minute, haven't we got enough names? And they go on and on. If you're making up a story, This is not the kind of detail that you put in a myth. These are very specific things that would have had very clear records. Okay? Uh, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into the district around the Jordan, again, geographic, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That reads like a history book. And if you think this is just a happy Jesus myth... There's things like this in the scripture that anyone at that time, this is in Luke, and we remember Luke really writes lots of details. Anyone could have went and checked that out, and it could have been proven false. You don't put details like that in if you're trying to move along a story or a narrative that isn't grounded in reality. This Bible just shows itself over and over and over again that this is in reality. It's in the world that we live in. It's the supernatural invading the natural here. Pontius Pilate, we heard him mentioned in that verse. People didn't believe that he existed. The Pilate Stone, found in 1967. It says this, translated, it says this, to the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, or this, uh, what do you call it? Like a, not a palace, but a building, anyways. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. So Pilate had built and dedicated this kind of building to... Augusti or whatever. 
we have the stone with his name on it. We didn't find it till 1967. We had to take things on faith up until then, and that's the way things should be taken. But every once in a while, God gives us a little evidence, and so that's what we're sharing today, some evidence. Here's another one that used to laugh at us about. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Beth- 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 Bethesda. It just didn't want to come out. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great, see, I should have a reader up here. I should have someone that just reads the verses. This is in John 5, verses 2 through 5. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one, one who was there, one, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, you know, and he says, I, there's no one to help me into the water. But just what I want to focus on is those highlighted words, the sheep gate, a pool, five colonnades. Here's what happened. When they went to, to excavate where the, they said this sheep gate and this pool was, there's nothing there. And they really laughed at Christianity for years. There is no, and they excavated. Archaeologists came in and they dug and they dug and they dug and in multiple times had been excavated. Not one single sign of any of this nonsense that's in these fairy tale books that you guys talk about. Until, this just says what I just told you. Until around 1900, they dug deeper than they had dug before, and all of a sudden they found, you can't really see it because, you know, they're broke down and stuff, but nobody doubts that this is exactly what they found. The five colonnades, they found the the five-sided pool or whatever it is, and the roof things, and that's exactly, so for, from the year, whatever, whenever it was written, 60, until 1900, there was no proof of it. But people just kept saying, no, we believe the Bible's true. We believe what's in there is actually accurate. And they said, you're ridiculous. It's not true. We looked. It's not there. Well, it doesn't matter. We believe it's true. And here they come along, 1,900 years later. They dig down a little further than they've ever dug before, and they found exactly what was written in the Bible. And they also said, there was, like, we know history, and there wasn't even any five-sided. Like, we don't find any precedent for that anywhere. Oh, whoops, sorry, found it. I love stuff like that. Sir William Ramsey. We're just about done with this section. Sir William Ramsey, he was, he was uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was a famous archaeologist and historian who spent, listen, look at what this is saying. He spent 14 years in Israel looking for evidence to disprove Luke's account. We tell you over and over again, if you've heard me say it once, you've probably heard me say it 20 times, that when people start out to disprove the Bible historically, so many times, uh, uh, what's his name, the popular movie now, he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune or whatever. Case for Christ, that guy, <laughs> Lee Strobel. Um, that's what he started out doing. Uh, same with J. Warren Wallace. Uh, throughout history, there's been just all kinds of these guys. C.S. Lewis um, started out as atheists saying, this, this bunch of garbage that you guys are hanging on to, it's nonsense. And they dig into it, and they go, Oh, I didn't expect to find that in there. He spent 14 years in Israel to show how Luke was full of hot air. Let me read a statement of his. After that, he said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. That's William Ramsey in the 1900s after searching for 14 years for evidence to disprove Luke. 
specifically. That's what he went there for. 14 years of his life spent on discrediting the Gospel of Luke, and he ends with a statement like that. Can't do it. It is accurate. This is what I was going to end with last time. (laughs) Dr. Nelson Gluick, however you say his name, he's an American rabbi and archaeologist. This is one of my favorite stories. I've, I've heard this over and over again. I've read it. I've listened to it. He's discovered over 1,500. Everyone say 1,500. That is a lot of places. Most of us have not been to 1,500 places. He's discovered 1,500 places. And I remember in the kind of the mid-90s when I first read this, I read some of his statements, and I was so blown away. And he said, everyone else goes over there, and they start with history. Because everyone, like the next guy below him has, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's like 100. You know, like he's at 15, like it's not even close. There's no second place. Like he is the leading archaeologist of finding ancient sites in Israel. And his statement was something, paraphrased, was something like this. Everyone else starts with history and what we know already. He said, I always pretend I don't know anything and I start with the Bible. I look at what does the Bible say in context and I try to get a sense for it, and then I start searching for it, and he's found 1,500 places that nobody else could find that they've been trying to find. It's not that other people aren't looking. He's the one that keeps finding them. He says this. This is a statement by him. It may, and this is one of my favorite statements from archaeology. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or, or contradicted a Bible reference. Sources, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. But that first statement there, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a Bible reference. There has been nothing in the entire history of archaeology that has ever been discovered and they went, aha, see the Bible's wrong. It always is the opposite. Ever. Never. There has never been one discovery that archaeology has found that says, see, we knew you had it wrong. Not once. Okay, real quick through this next section. This is going to make your eyes glaze over, but when I read some of these writings, I had to do it. I told Marnie, I said, I'm going to have to apologize to these guys. I said, I could do four weeks just on this one little section here, but she's like, yeah, you need to dial it back. So I'm trying. But I get really excited. These are people that we call non-Christian, what was the other, um, hostile pagan writers, okay? All except for the last two, which are Jewish, um, not Christian. But these are historians, they're letters that we have from governors, they're sources that we have from history um, that write about things that were going on. And so that's how we gather information about what was going on. Remember, we're still answering the question. What was written in the Bible? Did that really happen? Did the events, did the miracles, did the things that they say, did the Christian, did it start that way? Was it really Jesus? Did he really die on a cross? That's the questions we're answering. Okay, we know we have what was written, but what was written, is that true? Is, did it really happen? Let's go through some of these real quick. Thallus, you guys know him, right? We don't have any of his writings, but he's quoted by Julius Africanus. I think your last name is bad. Julius Africanus in 221 is quoting writings from Thallus. And he says this. Here's a statement. He's not a Christian. 
He's a pagan God worshiper. He's hostile to Christianity. He says this, on the whole, on the whole world, sorry, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Does this sound like a familiar event that would have happened around the time of Jesus? At the time when Jesus was on the cross, when he died, something phenomenal happened. The, the curtain was rent in two that opened up, you know, access to God. But there, something physical happened. There was darkness for three hours that, that on the face of the earth. And so there's been a couple historians that we found that have written about that. And so that's what he's writing about. How cool is that, that a guy, that, a, pagan, a pagan worshiper that is hostile to Christianity is writing about the events that we claim in the Bible really happened. Yeah, when Jesus died, darkness came over the land. And he, he's saying, and not only just the darkness, the earthquake as well. Number two, Tacitus. He lived from 56 to 120. He's one of the most trusted ancient historians. Here's what he says. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, that's Jesus Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is not biblical. It confirms biblical events, but this is from Tacitus, a pagan, non-Christian, hostile historian who's one of the most trusted historians, writes exactly what we would read in our Bible. Now, they don't approach it from a Christian standpoint. They call us an abomination. You'll find that a lot. If you read any of those ancient writings, we're called a disease and a plague. And, man, they hated us. They wanted to exterminate us. Yep. So they were called Christians. Their leaders suffered the extreme penalty at the hand of Pontius Pilate. What's coming up here in a couple weeks that we celebrate, you know, Resurrection Sunday and, and Good Friday He's a non-Christian in history from the, those years, 57 to 120 or whatever. He was there. He was talking about things that were only one generation removed from him. Syrian philosopher by the name of Mara Barsipian. We're not going to read anything he wrote. Phlegion, Phlegon. He was an ancient historian. Pliny the Younger. We are going to read something that he wrote. In a letter to the Roman emperor, Trajan, Trajan, He wrote this. They, the Christians, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Huh? How cool is that? He's this is again not a Christian. He's a Roman governor writing to another Roman governor. He said, uh, They sang hymns to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food. See, they got to eat. But food of an ordinary and innocent kind, which means not, not... gross food or gluttony or or food sacrificed to idols or whatever. It was just boring normal food, potluck food. 
love that 2,000 years ago they're talking about potlucks. I, that's just so cool. You're reading ancient history here that's outside of the Bible that talks about what Christians did. They were known for not being wicked, for not lying, for not committing adultery, for not doing any wicked deeds, uh, for not denying a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. They kept to their word, and uh, then they came back and they had some food. (laughs) That sounds like good Christians to me. So you got all of these guys. Uh, We're not going to write. Josephus is one of the most famous ones. If you've never heard of him, you should at least hear of him. Um, just, Just a couple more writings will be done. This is from Lucian, from the death of the Peregrine. Uh, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. Remember, this is not Christian writing. This is pagan writing. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites, meaning Jesus who started this whole thing, and was crucified on that account. Here we have another pagan witness that Jesus was crucified, just like the Bible says. You see these misguided creatures... Look at somebody, point at them, call them a misguided creature. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah, that we could be misguided creatures, guided by the one who looks misguided to the world, but is the true guide. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. How silly. Because we all know that we're not. Unless you read the Bible and it says, you are. You're eternal. You're an eternal being. So he, this pagan guy is saying, how, how stupid. They believe that they're immortal. Which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. Everybody else would get out of Dodge when the plague hit, and the Christians, who knew they would die if they stayed, stayed and helped. Stayed and comforted these people who had the plague and who were dying. Stayed and nursed their wounds. The Christians did. They would talk about Jesus when they knew they'd get the flesh torn from their body, when they knew they'd be martyred, when they knew they'd be drugged down the street, when they knew they'd be impaled, hung on crosses and poles. They just, they said, it's just death. We're, we were eternal beings. Like, we, this body just ends. And this pagan historian is saying, those stupid guys, that's ridiculous. He goes on to say, And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, meaning Jesus, that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted. How interesting. Almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? And deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Like the stuff of this world, it's just stuff. That's what this historian is saying. One more, last one. Now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man. This is Josephus. This is a uh, Jewish work. Uh, He was a Jewish historian. For he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accepted the truth. Interesting. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, but those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. How cool are some of those words from ancient historians, pagan historians, Jewish historians, governors, senators, on and on and on it goes, saying that, you know what? That's the kind of stuff that we read about in the Bible. 
that's what they say. They don't always get it. Like they have some different, like what they call us abominations and, you know, what was the misguided, whatever those were. But yet they get some of the facts right. And this went on in history. So last thing, are all the events and the words recorded in the Bible actually what happened? Well, based on it being early, so with eyewitnesses, based on archaeological and historical evidence, all the pictures that you just saw, and all these non-biblical sources, the 10 that I listed, those are not all of them. That's just a, a beginning bunch of them. And the, the Jewish ones, all kinds of them. But I love that it's from Jewish historians, it's from Roman historians, Greek historians, that knew what went on at that time, that said, yeah, what you're reading in your Bible, they didn't do it for that reason. They didn't know. How cool. They thought they were persecuting the Christians, and they thought they were writing how dumb we are. And 2,000 years later, the letter that they wrote to tell someone else how dumb we are, we take the quotes out of there and it proves that the word of God, you see, where's the Roman Empire now? Oh yeah, that's gone. Where's Christianity? Oh, it's still here. And Christ endures. This endures. So, yeah, we'll just end with that. You just need to know that God is doing things all around us that we can't always see. This, a lot of this stuff had been there for 1,900 years. God didn't think that it needed to be out. And now it is, and so we're excited about it, but still we put our faith on him, on faith. God, we know your nature. We know your character. We see it over and over. We can trust your word. So let the word of God have first place in your life because it's worth it. So next time we'll answer the question. Well, next time we're going to talk about pastor. But the week after... Uh, perfect segue into Easter because we're going to talk about is this word, okay, so we know it It really is what we had then. We know it's not just stories and fables. Jesus really existed. The events really happened. Third question that is the next logical question to ask leading into Easter, is it supernatural? Is it just a history book or is it supernatural? Is this really something that is what we would call the word of God?